opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are. We're in the you know, ascendancy I, I, within, the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that's a hard left wing position. Hard sort of left, the hard 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 left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, 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 the hard left, the hard left, hard left, the hard left, hard left, Welcome to Real Politic, a podcast by Tom Foster, Jack Frayne Reed, and Yair Rice, in which your three obedient lapdogs of a revolution struggle to determine whether works of cinema from through the ages are dialectically pleasing and, furthermore, ideologically correct, or whether they deserve to be consigned forever to the celluloid gulag. In this, our second episode, we wrap up our discussion of America's own Atlas Shrugged trilogy, based on the divisive 1957 novel by Ayn Rand. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for a rousing discussion of a BBC documentary about the fascist Tory slug Enoch Powell. Ready yourself for some fully automated luxury podcasting, and I'll leave you with this message. Optimise, comrades. You've got to optimise. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. All right. How's it going? Yeah, where were we? Where were we? We were talking about... um... Ragnar. Ragnar the pirate, yeah. Okay. Ragnar. He, he's basically a character you just hear about in the earlier installments and you finally get a little glimpse of him in the third one in Atlantis and Dagny's just like, oh, you're that guy. Oh, you're the one in the news. And this, I think the filmmakers try and play it for like a little comedic moment because there's like a little, oh, you know, and then like she just walks away like going, oh, that was weird. I met that guy that keeps appearing on the yeah. news. Isn't that so weird that he's here? Oh, isn't that hilarious? Oh, okay. It's weird because there is so much build up. I guess it must be an attempt at a joke. Uh... It's, yeah, it's just like, oh. It's that character we, we heard Which is of, odd because nothing about, but oh, okay. In the book, he apparently has a whole monologue and everything. He talks about how the Robin Hood myth is misunderstood. He wasn't stealing from the rich to give to the poor. <laughs> he was stealing from the tax man to oh give to everybody God. else. Fucking hell. Oh, my Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> the libertarian Robin Hood. <laughs> when he does appear in the third installment, I don't think he has any more than five lines. And then he's gone. Uh, it, may not, it may not even be that, but he's not in it for very long. So uh, to all the diehard Atlas Shrugged fans out there who are really wanting to get into the meat of Ayn Rand's polemic here at uh, Sorry, it just doesn't go in depth enough at all. Like, yeah, we we need more. Well, it, it, I think it's it's great when Dagny's going around Galt's Gulch and she mm. she talks to this woman oh. who who kind of says, um, <laughs> "I joined I joined the strike because I wouldn't put my children through an education system that doesn't teach them to think." And Dagny <laughs> says, "Well." I guess they have some great role models around here, don't they? And the woman says, oh, yeah, they do. They're really happy. Have a great day. <laughs> and then Dagny just walks off. That was really... 
yeah. that was written. <laughs> wow, wow, the quality of this dialogue. And it's great because in that scene, when she walks past the pastry store that the woman owns, the children are playing nearby and one's playing... Frolicking. <laughs> they're, they're frolicking in the nearby woods by the store. Yeah. And the, the, one, of the kids play, one of the kids is perfectly playing a guitar and the other one's like just peacefully playing with a, a ball or something, I think. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's just kind of like a... Just terrible. This is what homeschooling <laughs> does to your kids. <laughs> Makes you brilliant. Uh, uh, there's another attempt, though, at, I guess, libertarian humour. At about ten minutes in, this is just before he goes and meets his wife who on his anniversary and all that, and his secretary comes into his office and says, uh, you have more messages, Mr. Reardon. And she, so she starts reading out who they're from. We've got the National Council of Metal Industries, he says, file it, and she throws it in the bin, crumples it up, you know. Then, then she says, the State Science Institute, file it, yeah. in the bin. And then the final one, United Metal Workers Guild. Ah! 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 <laughs> they don't even say file it. Then uh-huh. She just looks at him, and she throws it away. <laughs> they can't conscience giving the workers oh, any bargaining power in this world. There's some really priceless scenes towards the end of this part one um, with, with it just clashes with the unions. It's great stuff. The, the union boss is like talking to Dagny. You can't force men to go out and get killed for profit. And she says, put that in writing. Like, just, like, oh, sick burn. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, put it in writing because that's what you do, you fucking boring government bureaucrat. Us capitalists, we just get things done. <laughs> we just get things done even if workers die in the process. <laughs> um, if he forbids his men from driving the train, then he, she says that nobody in the union will ever work for them again. <laughs> Okay. Blatantly threatening, like, oh, awful, awful stuff. Workers' rights, man. Workers' like, rights, Non-existent here. They are violated big time in the course of the Atlas Shrug movies. And... By everybody, as you say, the government as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. The government are not left-wing in Atlas Shrugged. They are just... Not slightly. In addition to what you were saying earlier, they just have weird stuff. Like, in the beginning, it says they instituted a wage moratorium. You can't yeah. fire employees from profitable companies. There's something that they don't really explain called the fair price bill. I think it's like price fair fix- share bill. No, or this is, is the fair thing? price bill. Oh wow, yeah, they, they really like fairness, don't they? They do it's love good. fairness. Yeah. And yet they're still yeah. terrible socialists. Although uh, price fixing does have some uh, precedent, at least, yeah. unlike everything else. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Except for one thing, Soviet Union actually did. There, there we go. You, you've got a point, Rand. <laughs> well, um, so, so should, should I now now get on to uh, my long-awaited my grand theory? about about who is John Gold. They say it so many times, don't they? Who is John Gold? Who is John Gold? A.K.A. who the fuck cares? First John Gold, so let me just... First John Gold was at five minutes, I do believe. Okay. Just after the montage. Like five how, minutes thirteen. Five minutes thirteen. I like how they refer to it as that. You know, Dagny's like, "Oh, I hate that expression. It's become that expression. People just mm. there is an idiom which is commonplace, which involves just asking who some random guy with a name is. Like, it, apparently, it means don't ask questions that can't be answered. Does is that is that what it means? That's that's literally given by one of the characters in part one as a meaning of that phrase. Okay. Don't ask questions that can't be answered. 
Is that is that like most people, unless they're the elite few, they're not good enough to know who John Gold is. They're not. They're not good enough. Well, makes no sense. Is what it is. Well, uh, yeah, it sounds like pseudo profound. The, the, the very first one. Oh, sorry, I was reading the wrong time. The very first who is John Gold is at three twenty-seven. Oh, okay. It's a lady. The waitress is asking. Hey, what happened to you? To this like homeless-looking gentleman who walked oh. into the cafe, and he he just says, "Who is John Galt?" That's what happened to him, what okay. happened to him ladies and gentlemen. Oh, he does ask for a coffee first, and she asks, "Do you have any money?" And he says, "Yeah, I've got money." Oh. Something to that effect. Oh, okay. But then then she asks, "Hey, what happened to you?" And so even using their definition of like, don't ask questions that can't be answered, like. What happened to you can very much be answered by like you know the person who you're asking. Yeah. What happened to you? Um, well, uh, I lost my job, and then I don't know. Couldn't uh, pay rent anymore. End up on the streets. Horrible I, government I, we I, have. I applied for housing benefit, and the government wouldn't give it to me. Like, yeah, they're, they're, these are the reasons you tend to hear. Instead, it's who is John Galt? So yeah, who is John Galt? So, who is John Gold, Jack? Who is John Gold? All right, I'll tell you who John Gold is. So in part three, they have this sort of John Gold origin story sequence where Dagny is on the railroad and she meets this. I was, I was trying to think how I was describing him to Tom last night. This fucking pathetically deferential class traitor. This <laughs> fucking Thatcherite Barrow boy. This this absolute scummy railroad man. This bearded hippie looking dude like he's just a lot of the characters though most of those words do um yeah but uh, but anyway he's just there he's just he's a normal guy who works on the railroad and he's so pathetically deferential when he meets dagny he's like oh my god you did everything i got so much to thank you for i have never done a day's work in my life as you it's all you you sitting in the office being rich as you anyway so, so he basically just kind of just just spunks his load about how awesome she is and then she asks him about you know what he knows i think she just sort of says who is john galt in the general kind of (laughs) general sense and he and and what he tells her is that he used to work with john galt on another railway line and one day the workers decided to basically collectivize everything we're just gonna pool our assets together we're gonna provide for each according to their need. So, so, so they all come to that decision. But jo- John Galt is just not having it. He's like, I want to do my own thing. And and the railroad man, he kind of explains that you know people started taking more than their fair share, and the ones who didn't have the skills didn't want to work anymore or something. Mm. Just this absolute nonsense. I, I gotta say, I was just for a brief interruption no worries. Uh, i don't know why i keep saying i gotta say i gotta say a lot of stuff jack i gotta say <laughs> uh, I, I do love these randian allegories these parables that she throws in because there's one here as well where it's whole dialogue is i thought we might visit the 20th century motor company in wisconsin it's a real mystery why it failed no no it's no mystery bad ideas brought it down <laughs> yeah that just sounds as like i understand it the company flattened the wage scale and still paid everyone according to their needs, <laughs> not according to their contributions. <laughs> okay. I mean, in the world of libertarianism, it is very easy to determine what people's contributions are. I think that flattening the wage scale, wouldn't that basically mean making sure the highest paid are not paid that ridiculously much more yeah. than the lowest paid? That doesn't mean paying everyone according to their needs, not their contributions. That just means no giant payouts for CEOs and 
stuff like that. That's yeah, all that means. Well, that's what I'm saying. They love quantifying people's contributions and thus their personal mm. worth. <laughs> yeah, how much like, are you? yeah, how much are you giving us? And, and, it, and it is very much the same attitude we see when people talk about immigration, which is that a migrant is just this kind of black hole sucking up healthcare and jobs and housing in our country. Yeah, that, that's what human beings are. They're just this sort of mm. gaping void of nothingness into, I mean, uh, into just... which tangible material qualities just vanish. And that's obviously, you know, completely the wrong way to look at that. And the flip side of that is you can say, no, these people do actually contribute. But even that is a fundamentally dehumanizing mm. way to look at people. Mm. But I mean, well, there's this beautiful quote from right after that allegory, which is, why all these stupid altruistic urges it's not being charitable it's being unfair <laughs> actual line by dagny the protagonist of this story wow. why something. all these stupid altruistic urges oh. you should hear some of the things they come out with when uh, they hold like a sort of dinner gathering for dagny in atlantis in the third one mm. and they're kind of all explaining why they left the world and stuff and went to this retreat and they're, they're spouting shit like we honor charity and benevolence but it must be provided on the giver's terms vo voluntarily and not by force. <laughs> and then there's John Gobbs going on like, they don't understand the sacrifice of working under their terms. <laughs> the <laughs> path will try to make us feel guilty for our success. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Yeah. So, John Gull origin story and my grand theory of who is John Gull. So, once upon a time, the railroad man tells us, there was a bunch of workers who decided to participate in collective action, and one guy decided, no, I'm too good for this thing, I'm too good to work with everybody else, and I'm going to go off and do my own thing whilst petulantly saying the bollocks phrase, I will stop the motor of the world. So, John Gull marches out, and sure enough, because this is the Randian universe, the collectivism... It just does not work. But that is immaterial. John Galt is, at heart, as evidenced by his origin story, nothing more than a glorified fucking scab. Who is John Galt? John Galt is Tristram Hunt crossing a picket line to give a lecture on Marxism. That is who John Galt is. He represents everything that is nasty and selfish about society. And that is precisely why Ayn Rand loved him and adored him and made him a symbolic substitute for God or Stalin. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting because there was three of them, wasn't there, originally, like, that all decided they got to do something. There was John Galt, there was Dan Conio, and there was that Ragnar guy. And they all decided they got to do this thing. Did separately. they all work on the railroad together? I, I don't know how they all formed this coalition. I just know that they decided this amongst themselves. All I can recall from the dialogue, it's really dull and... It is incredibly dull. It is incredibly dull. Yeah, so Ragnar went to do his Robin Hood thing, getting from the fucking tax man, and I don't know what he's doing with it, you know. But that's Ragnar's thing. And then John Galt, as you just described, basically the whole strike idea of his is a plan to ruin the world. It is a plan, like, if it actually worked the way they want it to work, it's a plan to destroy the world. And Dan Conio's plan was to um, scam a bunch of his fellow millionaires and billionaires out of loads of money by investing in a company that he knew was going to be nationalized very soon. And he says that he knew it was going to happen, and he was actually scamming his fellow rich people and so you just gotta ask like these are the, the heroes you know yeah. that are literally just doing what they can to destroy 
the world and civilization yeah. as we know it, not just implicitly, not through some kind of, you know, their factories are belching out loads of smoke and destroying the planet. No, like they literally want to take out civilization. Yeah. Uh, and that is actually a big part of Randian objectivism, you know, like the whole, you've got to destroy everything to build up again from the ashes. And that's just way more frightening than even traditional like libertarianism. Like, that's... Well, yeah, I mean, it's terrifying. It is a materialistic rather than an idealistic perspective. Oh, yeah. They don't want to destroy the ideology and the ideas that they hate. They want to destroy the world in which they thrive. Yeah, it, it, it is a cult. It's a cult. Mm, right. a sinister cult of the individual. Hey, this one guy refused to participate in collective action. We'll just say his name all the time. Well, that isn't weird. Fuck them. And and also my, my, my other thought on the strike, because the Jongol origin story where he reveals himself to be nothing more than a glorified fucking scab is not a strike. It's a bit of strike breaking, basically, where he decides that he's going to go back to work. Yeah, you know, he's, mm. he, he's going to split off from a collective effort to attain a settlement that everybody at the company is happy with. He's not going to participate in that. He's going to go off and do his own thing. Quintessential scabbing. But of course, then he organizes a strike because he's like an actual strike. He's like, we need to do this at the higher levels of the businesses. So he gets all the CEOs to resign, basically. And I think we've actually had a very interesting glimpse into the Randian world in Britain recently. Uh, I think we've seen what happens if, say, the board of directors or the shareholders of a company decide that they will go on strike in order to just show how essential they are, how much everybody mm. needs them to function. Mm. And I'm talking, of course, about the Parliamentary Labour Party, <laughs> um, <laughs> who, who uh, just decided, you know, 172 yeah. of us are going to decide we will refuse to work with our leader yeah. and with the membership, who they have an equal amount of contempt for, as they do Jeremy Corbyn. All these people in powerful positions within the company that is, well, yeah. is the Labour Party, Let's just you know talk about a party as if it were a business for a minute and forget that we're socialists. <laughs> of course, the immediate reaction was, oh fuck, these people have had so much power centralized in their hands, as has any good you know, person who runs a business. Well, I don't, I don't mean good, I mean effective in our, in our rapacious economic system. Yeah. Um, but these people have had so much power and influence consolidated in their hands that the system is innately structured so we need them for it to operate. Without mm. them, it is decapitated. The opposition cannot function in the manner it is expected to. But what they got wrong was that rather than just saying, oh God, we need you, we need you so much, we realise we made a terrible mistake, please come back, we'll get rid of Corbyn, <laughs> but all of us who are left wing will just leave the party <laughs> on our own accord all uh, hundreds of thousands of us um that didn't happen the, the, the Labour membership were just like, well, we're not very happy about this. You've just made the opposition completely ineffectual. We're going to certainly re-elect Jeremy Corbyn in September. Yeah. Uh, Corbyn's team were just like, OK, well, now we can fill the shadow cabinet with people who actually believe the same things as us. And <laughs> although obviously it's an uphill struggle, the actual Labour Party, not these MPs who express views that are not held by the Labour Party, the shadow cabinet is is much more united, much more coherent front than it ever was before. I think there will be some deselections. I think we will get rid of some of the striking business leaders, you might describe them, for, for, for good. And I think we'll prove
true, but of course there will be short-term destabilization if ever somebody at the top of an organization abdicates their role of responsibility. But, you know, it's not just them. The nature of our endeavors is collective. We can move beyond them. And Mm. if any CEOs decide to flounce out of their business in a synchronized, their businesses in a synchronized fashion, I highly recommend their employees look at their comrades at that job and think who might be better suited to this position, (laughs) frankly. The whole thing just smacks of great man theory. The idea that historical figures are what shapes society rather than society is what shapes historical figures. Absolutely. Yeah, like it's ridiculous. If any of these CEOs left the job, just somebody would get promoted. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and and well there's that thing where Dagny she gets just fed up with everything that's happening at Taggart International and she decides to fuck off to her cabin in the middle of the woods, her mm. log cabin, just as a rich person has the luxury of doing. And uh, <laughs> buying and, her own private plane at one point. Yeah, I know. And somehow this incredibly wealthy person just you know living this opulent life just dripping with lucre somehow she knows how to fly a plane I mean, Shitty Blackberry. And then crash it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, no, she's got some app on her Blackberry that gives her the deets. Like, <laughs> gives yeah. her some top tips for driving a plane. Uh, look, Blackberries can't help you find directions when you're just walking. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, she, she goes off to a log cabin and the business completely falls apart in her wake. There's that huge train Wait. crash I already explained where everyone dies who, who had it coming. Yeah. You know what the apologetics say? What do they say? They say that, of course, the society has bred such ignorant looters that when the CEOs and everybody leaves, there's just nobody intelligent enough to carry on. And <laughs> everyone... Everyone else is literally a moron. And that's why, towards the end, where John Galt is... Is it John Galt who's getting tortured? Yeah, the yeah, electro- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, the, the generator breaks, and he has to tell them how to fix it. And that's not just some kind of badass voice. They're all literally supposed to be too stupid to know yeah. how to fix a very simple electrical problem. That These are the scientists yeah. and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, is it the CEO who does all the electrics yeah. of their companies? Is that how it yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, Jim Taggart, particularly in that portion of the film, loses his mind. Literally becomes oh, such yeah. an over-the-top like villain. Uh, He's when, just when, a when... fiend for nationalisation. He, he is, yeah. Like when his sister finds out that the railway has been nationalised, he's like been completely won over yeah. by the. Uh, <laughs> he's he's been brought, you know, he's uh, yeah. In this world, if you're a money-grubbing pig, you side with the state. Seemingly. Yeah, yeah, I um, love it. I she makes love so it. much money from the state. But the yeah, best-paying yeah. jobs, you know. <laughs> jobs. Um, Remember that flashback when it goes to him randomly going like and do you just like that just like that i think he's talking to his i think it's his wife in it and stuff or there's it's a i don't know which character he's saying that to <laughs> i need to look back into mm. see he just he loses his mind and then when the electrical machine the project f breaks down and they're trying to get it fixed he's like i've had it and he just runs over and tries to fix the machine himself and he's had no involvement in the creation of the device because <laughs> he's that desperate to see john galt fried to death it is just Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. a classic rand. Um, I've got a quote that is the best explanation I ever got for what the government's actual plan is involving Reardon Metal. Okay. At a time of desperate steel shortages, we can't afford to allow the expansion of a company which produces too much and might produce, what? might replace companies which produce too little. 
That is how you create an unbalanced economy. Mate, the British steel industry would fucking kill for somewhere like Reardon Metals right now. Like, if, honestly, yeah. we, given the, the sheer underproduction in this country... <laughs> well, um, they even say, at a time of desperate steel shortages, yeah, I know, and then go on to say they can't allow you to produce too much. It's, it's baffling. It, it, it is... I mean, it's economics 101, guys! I mean, come on, to quote Sean Hannity in part two. <laughs> I think something is going going completely off on a tangent is something we should talk about is that in the 70s, Albert Ruddy, the famous Hollywood producer, tried to make an adaptation of Atlas Shrugged. It was going to have right. it was going to have Faye Dunaway as Dagny. It was going to have Robert Redford as uh, Hank Reardon, Hank Reardon I think. Or and maybe John Gold. Who was John Gold going to be played in it? it was they lined up a similar sort Clint, of Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood as Hank Reardon and Robert <laughs> Redford <laughs> as John Gold. They would have so, brought a lot more charisma than these yeah. chums. Yeah, well, John Gold in the third film is just played by some nondescript Tom Cruise impersonator. <laughs> yeah, um, they've just wheeled in just to, like... <laughs> yeah, but I, but I mean, it, so it was going to be this great... You know this sort of epic film. I I reckon kind of in the vein of Coppola's the uh, yeah. the version of The Great Gatsby that Coppola wrote. Basically, yeah. uh, I can't remember who directed that, but the '74 one anyway. It was yeah. So Albert Ruddy. Not, not the recent was it 2013 one. No, although <laughs> in terms of shitty politics, it would probably be closer to uh, Basil Ruddy's Great Gatsby in, in terms of just opulence and and just just everything too much um but but yeah yeah so it was going to be this sort of you know classic new hollywood film with some of some of the leading actors of that era um but the problem was even though albert ruddy who I, i'm not a big fan of books i but i love this one this is a great book uh, like you know he'd just come off the success of producing the godfather and uh and ayn Rand naturally loved the godfather because <laughs> <laughs> uh, market 101 bitch oh yeah i mean he wake up with a horse's head in your bed don, yeah. don corleone is a proper capitalist he knows how to get <laughs> shit done but basically albert ruddy had just come off the godfather and had a lot of cachet so he talked to rand about it and she was like fine but on the condition that I get final script approval. <laughs> and he was yeah. like, Ein, there's no way I can do that. <laughs> he, was, he was like, Ein, that is not going to happen. There's absolutely no way that is going to happen, Ein. And then in the end, he was like, Ein, Ein, I love your book. But uh, if you won't give me the rights now, I will wait till you fucking die. Find the rights then. And, and apparently she was like, ah, oh, but I will make sure that you can't get it in, in time I'm dead. And he said, Ein, I'm a producer. I'll just get somebody else to get it for me. <laughs> if, you won't, if you won't give me final script approval, then I am going right out this fucking door right now. And apparently he walked right out the door and the 1970s Atlas Shrugged movie, which to be fair could have been cinematically a lot better yeah, than yeah. The, the ones we're talking Easier about. Much Philosophically awful, but technically much br more brilliant than this stuff. It <laughs> honestly could have been easier on the eyes in every way. I mean, he probably would have got someone, not maybe not Coppola, but someone to, to that effect to direct it. It would have had Faye Dunaway, Robert Redford in it, people who are most decidedly easy on the eyes. So it would have at least you know, been sort of like, oh, a great folly of the era, an interesting mm -hmm. thing to watch. Maybe a sort of heaven 
Ireland's gate. Yeah. But instead, because Albert Ruddy and Ayn Rand were both the most colossal cunts, yeah. completely <laughs> unwilling to compromise with the other, yeah. it never got made. And instead, we've got John Aglialuro and Harmon Caslow's weird trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> Heaven's Gate. Do you think, because Michael Cimino, of course, like even the Deer Hunter, it's set in, of course, yeah. a very conservative community and stuff. And of course, he himself, I think, gives off very quite conservative. I think, yeah, Cimino was on the political right, wasn't he? He, he, was, he could have yeah. been a very good director for yeah. Atlas Shrugged. No, exactly. if they managed to get a really good right wing artist yeah. to direct it, you could potentially make something. Might not be my cup of tea, but might be alright. Might be worth something cinematically, at least. Yeah, it's like, oh wow, this happened in the 70s. I don't know if there's a director now who would get that bill. It would have certainly got like wider viewing if it happened. Eastwood, maybe, returning to him. Eastwood is too kind of slapdash, half assed a director, especially now in his old yeah. age, to do that. He's just very yeah. much like he sticks the camera there, one take. He's good if he's got a nice story that does the trick. True. His strong suit is not the directing. Yeah, he's actually directed a lot of very good films but he doesn't do this kind of grand project really he's, d- he's done oh, yeah. a few like I was, I was a big fan of uh, Flags of Our Fathers and yeah. Mothers from Iwo Jima that yes. was a nice little duology yeah 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 and I, I think there's a lot to be said for Clint Eastwood as an artist but I don't think this is the kind of project he would have done very well the kind of very literary well yeah the more sort of he can do yeah, literary, literary adaptations he can he can adapt like Dennis Lehane's films like Mystic River is one of his very best movies mm, oh but, that's a good one that's yeah a good one. but someone like Ayn Rand has serious literary pretensions she is one of yeah, the highbrow yeah. and I don't think that is the kind of meter that Clint shoots yeah so so i but so i think as tom said somebody like chimino someone like francis ford coppola would maybe have done a fairly watchable atlas shrugged maybe in a kind of melodramatic trashy kind of fashion but still watchable unfortunately we got this instead (laughs) we got so who are the directors in our three films then so 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 tom tom like on on number three you got j james monero and atlas shrugged is one of two directorial projects by J. James Monero listed on his IMDb page. However, he did do uncredited second unit work on a film called Indecent Proposal <laughs> in 1993, <laughs> yeah. which, which is a sexy thriller that would have really helped yeah. with the canoe polishing montage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. that's, that's where he got the ideas from, you know. Yeah. That one had, uh, I think that film had Robert... Redford in it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. an it's a Redford one. Redford keeps cropping up in this. He does a Redford <laughs> does yeah. He does a lot of of the sexy films and so on, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of the films with. This is weird. I, I, it's strange that Redford was willing to appear in the Atlas Shrugged movie in the radical seventies. Although, although obviously mm. radicalism had kind of died down by seventy four or five when they were gonna make it i think actually godfather was 72 so it might have been even earlier when the hangover of the 60s was still very tangible but you know you'd associate redford with the political left albeit just a liberal maybe but something like something like bullworth his weird like politician starts rapping film is definitely on the left it's it's it advocates universal health care and stuff like that and is a very pro-racial justice in a way that hip-hop soundtrack as well very good hip-hop soundtrack lots of mm. funny jokes about drugs and stuff oliver platt doing a lot of cocaine in that movie very very amusing <laughs> but um, <laughs> um just stuff. thought of oliver platt it's weird that redford who i would generally say is the most bleeding heart of bleeding heart liberals was going to appear in an atlas drug film clint eastwood totally makes sense faye dunaway yeah. I, I don't know about her politics really if it was jane Fonda 
Fonda out of like a 70s female superstars. That would be bizarre. Because yeah. definitely <laughs> Hanoi Jane. But no, Faye Dunaway, I don't know what her here. politics were. <laughs> Mm. James uh, J. James Monero also directed an episode of Nash Bridges as well. It was a show starring Don Johnson and Cheech Moran. <laughs> <laughs> the boys. <laughs> so that was that was his directing chops before he got his big break without the Shrug Part Three, and he was never seen again. <laughs> <laughs> won awards man <laughs> oh yeah well, we well an award at least <laughs> well uh, the guy who directed out the shrug part two john putch i counted i think 48 credits on his imdb page so he's been around you know he, he he's done a lot of stuff although not not the kind of stuff that anyone would have seen the director of part one was paul johansson Oh. Who you might not know. Um, I see. <laughs> you might know him TV's Bones as <laughs> a character uh, in a one episode, it would seem. Oh, no, these are his acting credits. This is the director's acting credits oh, I'm so looking at right now. the director was primarily an actor. Got 69 acting credits and four directing credits. <laughs> wow, they really chose the expert. It seems to me you are the expert, Mark. <laughs> he, was in, he was in Mad Men for three episodes. Not who, a huge who did, who did play? Berg Donnelly. I can't remember. I can't remember uh, my character. No, I've I've started watching that finally, and I, I have no idea how that is. Great show, uh, great show. If you want, if you want to see some good-looking capitalists doing shitty things and fucking each other, watch Mad Men. Don't fucking watch the app. He had an uncredited appearance in the Notebook. <laughs> <laughs> the Notebook. Classic. Uh, um, yeah, I, I just I just found out that last year there was a, a posthumous Ayn Rand novel published called Ideal, presumably nothing to do with the Johnny Vegas pot dealing. <laughs> and also, in my notes, I've highlighted Hank's a good man. By what fucking definition? Oh, yeah. Danny says that in part one as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. You're a good man, Hank Reardon. And it's right after he just slept with her, cheating on, on his wife. Well, I don't, know about, man, I don't know about a good man, but I think according to the ideals of the, of the film, he is the ideal man. He is the ubermensch. <laughs> ideal. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry to use that ideal again. But no, I mean, really, he does seem to be kind of like, you know, this is what a real no-nonsense man who gets things done and doesn't let society hold him back kind of says. Right, returning for a second, our friend Paul Johansson, uh, he directed one film before Atlas Shrugged Part 1. Oh, what was that? The Incredible Mrs. Ritchie, a 2003 PG-13 TV movie about a troubled teen given the chance to redeem his criminal debt to society. (laughs) (laughs) What? You don't owe anything to society. That is not objectivist. Debt to society. Can't believe it. Uh, Society isn't real. I guess guess Paul just wanted to work with like a big budget film, I guess. You know, the opportunity Mm. was there. He just like, oh... I get paid at least. <laughs> yeah, time. He... yeah, that truck probably was just like, like yeah, that's big budget, twenty million. Yeah, yeah for a director sure. like that who's kind of going through a TV movie to that, you know, yeah, he just wants uh, to get uh, some work uh, in. He, he went all out. I, I gotta say, to be honest, I don't know about parts two and three because they're not as fresh in my mind, but part one was pretty competently directed. Yeah, the script was terrible. All the acting was terrible, but it wasn't actually badly put together. 
can sort of tell what's going on visually, at least. <laughs> I'd say from part two, it is very badly put together. I think they do stuff like, they, they show you a sign saying something like, where's my job? or something and then oh. in case you missed it the camera just pans back to show you it again yeah <laughs> i mean it's just stuff like that and in the third one when they have that explosion which yeah, looks they... like they're just animating stuff over a still yeah. image basically in part three oh. they resort to an overabundance of use of the stock footage and stuff it is mm. uh, basically like <laughs> this part in it where you have uh it's like a factory that's exploding or being yeah. blown up they get like this stock picture <laughs> assuming they put it into their editor they they zoomed in just in on the image and then they added like an effect to make it look like it was a camera shaking and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's pandemic shit right there, yeah. man. Yeah, honestly. Exactly. Oh. And they just throw in very cheap explosion effects and the artificial camera shaking manually to make it look like you're actually there in guerrilla style filmmaking of a factory exploding. Well, I think it's what a guerrilla style oh. filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if they gave Harambe a full control of the editing suite. Um, but, but no, I mean, it's like after a while, like fucking J. James Manera, director supreme, it walked into the editing suite after having like said, all right, guys, I'll give you a weekend. Go off, animate the uh, place blowing up. He walked in there and the editor's just jacking off to the canoe polish montage. <laughs> <laughs> you found, found Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the first film definitely got much better special effects. Like, the CGI, it was actually, like, it was it was quite good. I mean, it looked like it was from a mainstream film, you know, and fires, explosions, they all standard film fare at this one. I'm very glad. Yeah. But the, you mentioned signs. There, there was a wonderful sign at the end of part one that read, because just to remind people, it was Ellis Wyatt, the oil tycoon. He set fire to his drilling operation in order to prevent the government from nationalizing it. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so he left a sign saying, I'm leaving it as I found it. Take over, it's yours. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Ellis Wyatt. Did you, you were just walking along in the beautiful countryside <laughs> of Colorado and you saw a giant inferno and you're like, there we go. Inferno this is like Colorado topic. needs to be taxed. Yeah. All of it, uh, punitively. Oh, and, that, and just just while we're mentioning Colorado and stuff, like, so, uh, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the director thing. There's, there's these beautiful, loads of beautiful aerial shots of this landscape, mostly, I would assume, in Colorado. It, it looks sort of like Yellowstone or something. Yeah. It's amazing. And but we're focused on this train at all times. It's traveling on this garbage <laughs> track that is yeah. just destroying the wonderful landscape that <laughs> America actually has to offer in, yeah. with this fucking. Trains, trains everywhere, fucking trains, fucking oh. trains. But the thing is, of course, in their eyes, the sight of a big hunk of metal surging through this wonderful <laughs> landscape is the true beauty. <laughs> a big hunk of metal. Are you talking about Hank Reardon there? More Reardon like now. hunk Reardon, yeah. am I right? <laughs> oh yeah, the best. It's the best, you know, in this world. Reardon metal is the best. Just so you know, red and metal. That good old steel and copper, which I was saying earlier about how all the antagonists are meant to be just absolute morons. Yeah. What, nothing that's stopping them from just, like, obtaining a sample, either, like, sneakily or just saying, we're the government, we're taking it. <laughs> like, already evil, right? So yeah. it's ours now? And then just, like, taking a sample, like, putting it through a mass spectro spectrometer or whatever it is you use, 
and finding out because the whole the only mystery is how much copper he's using in the steel. That's that's the only factor. That's it. <laughs> that's it. And these people are too stupid within the logic of this film to do that. They've got a state science institute, and they can't like just figure out how much copper is in a piece of metal. That's yeah. all they. Have. Most of the time, yeah. the State Science Institute are focused on building torturing devices, yeah. you know, doing scientific <laughs> developments and stuff yeah. in yeah. this world. Wonderful applications of torture devices uh, that really help the struggling economy. You know? well, in the third film, doesn't Dagny go to the State Science Institute and it's literally empty? They don't do <laughs> shit there apart from like maybe the wall of electricity. Yeah, their big government doesn't actually spend a lot of money. Yeah, that's the sort of Randian conspiracy theory, isn't it? The, the, the government yeah, they're just all just pocketing it all. Money. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 is, it is a it's just nonsense, the whole, the whole fucking the film. The whole, what is it, four and a half hours altogether. Yeah, it's, I know. It's non-stop nonsense. Actually, going back to the story about Albert Ruddy and Ayn Rand, like, there's this great quote from him where he's saying, like, Ayn, like, the character of John Gold is not introduced until page 60. That's not narrative economy. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand that, pages is a narrative economy. Yeah, I mean, that could be the tagline for Atlas Shrugged. That's not cinematic <laughs> economy. <laughs> yeah, evidently, judging by some of the things that they have cut out, I, I think they needed more. They needed like five films at least yeah. to really uh, do this uh, amazing epic justice that uh, would have been fun for us we'd have had to recruit extra friends oh, it, would be, it would become increasingly apparent that the we, three of us are our only friends respectively either that or heaven forbid some of us would get d double assignments oh yeah. god <laughs> the big question is can this be recommended to anyone is there any audience anywhere that could watch any of these three films we, we've moved noted think... like like, I think we already mentioned it. Yeah, train spotters. It is literally nothing really. I don't know. I think apart I, from if you're already converted to this 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 ideology. That's the thing. I think if somebody does have the ideology, they will be willing to delude themselves that this representation of it is good uh, as a work of cinema. I I think that's that's got to be the only way. But I think that could be argued about the first film just because it is technically okay, but. I don't know, like, the second and third ones get embarrassingly bad, don't but, they? But they still got the top... Pr the third one, the worst of all of them, still got the top prize at the Anthem Libertarian True, but Festival. that's probably just run by the most extreme of the most extreme. I, I would think that even, like, a, your, your so-called, like, typical libertarian, a mainstream libertarian, if you will, would actually kind of shy away from... Uh, well, yeah. Ayn Rand in general, yeah. because she is sneered upon by well, most, most people. Most by libertarians as well, yeah. Most libertarians I've met are incredibly dubious about Ayn Rand per se. They don't want to be associated with her because I think they think she discredits their whole movement. Didn't um, she die on social security? I, I've heard that, but then I think because our beliefs that are that certain material circumstances do happen in people's lives that they can't... Oh, of course. They can't I don't, prevent. So, I, so, so, yes, I mean, she's a hypocrite. There's nothing wrong with her. But, with she, her can't, that. but she can't. But it's kind of hilarious her. as well that a lot of these objectivists would argue that you shouldn't be a hypocrite. That's like one of their few 
like rules as it yeah were. yeah of, of course i mean yeah if we're talking about my libertarian acquaintance who hated bob marley because he received cancer treatment when he was terrified of dying then i'm sure he would equally resent ayn rand for mm. abdicating her principles uh, I, I, I don't point it out with checks. vitriol exactly but i do i i find it funny i do find it funny <laughs> Well, you know what? She, she was an evil fuck, and I can't, she deserved it. it, it I can't it, it, really yeah. say I give a shit. <laughs> yeah. You just take the satisfaction that she claimed it, and then you know, yeah, she just, she just, you know, yeah, would make a big point out of it, but yeah, wonderful irony, wonderful irony. Uh, so. We've, we've got like almost two hours of material. We by... also didn't really. I know there's not much narrative, but we didn't like discuss it at all. Fuck it, it's boring. It's really boring. It is really boring. We've got to come take really... out the little bits from it. Really. I've also wanted to see if either of you guys could guess who said the following line. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> and one last warning, dear brother. I've never done anything to hurt a living creature in my entire life, but if you double-cross me in any way, I will destroy you. Does Dagny say that to, to Jim? Jim? Yeah. Dagny totally says that to Jim. Yeah, they haven't I will destroy you. <laughs> I will destroy. Like, uh, that is... was big against nepotism, and I'm not a fan of nepotism. But <laughs> come on, there's a difference between nepotism and I will destroy you. <laughs> that does sound like the shit that my libertarian acquaintance would say. Uh... Psychotic episodes to read, <laughs> actually. So yeah. <laughs> So I think we might be almost drawing to a conclusion. Are there any points we'd like to make before we reach that satisfying moment? Well, I would sing the internationally to counter this bullshit, <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically, collectivise, motherfuckers. Collectivise, yeah. <laughs> work together. Work let's, together. let's get some collective action going. Let's work together yeah. to overcome the seemingly insurmountable problems of our society. They're not so insurmountable if you get something going with your comrades. Mm. And objectivism is not going to solve the world's problems. No. No. It's, it's in fact, it's explicitly fun. going to burn down the world in but, order to rebuild it. I will say, one, I think, very pertinent point about the Atlas Shrugged films is that they are just insufficiently adherent to the empirical science of Marxism-Leninism. You have it yeah, right there. That, that's very it's, true. It's just insufficient. And that is a great way to conclude. Okay, so okay. Marxism, there, there, we go. there we go. Bye.